Uh, my name is Pastor Justin. I'm the senior pastor here at New Life, and we have been going through the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter, actually probably his second letter, um, to the church in Corinth. And I love going through a book of the Bible. Last year, we went through the entire book of Acts together. Um, and, and I love it specifically because it forces us to talk about awkward and uncomfortable things that we would otherwise avoid. Um, and today's one of those days. If you've read ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll, you'll quickly realize, you can just read verse 1, and you're like, oh, it's about to get real. Um, I want to make a very clear reminder to you before we even get started, though, that when it comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that really the, the, the whole letter, that Paul did not write this letter to the mayor of Corinth. He didn't write the letter to the whole city of Corinth. He actually defines specifically who he writes the letter to, and I think it's important for us to be reminded of that and then what that might imply to us. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the second verse, he says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, Paul writes this letter to the people, the, the, the local body of believers in this city of Corinth. And so as we, as we prepare our hearts, uh, just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm not going to have you stand up. We're going to kind of walk down through it together. So please remain seated and uh, keep your hands, arms, and feet inside the vehicle at all times. Um, and, and buckle up because it's about to get real. Uh, first, verse 1, he starts out and says this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and uh, of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Um, I guess that would be his stepmom. Please tell me that it's not his mom. Um, either way, here's the point. If you're taking your, your stepmom to the prom, you've crossed the line. You know what I mean? Like there's, and it doesn't matter what, what era you live in. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Jesus follower or not. You're like, yeah, like even, I mean, Paul even says like even the people who, who weren't followers of Jesus in Corinth were like ill, gross. Like you should stop. Like that's not, we don't even tolerate that. And it's important to note that this man, and we don't know why Paul doesn't necessarily address the woman. Maybe she's not even a Christian. But um, he addresses specifically at least this guy. It's important for us to realize that this guy isn't just like fallen into temptation. He's not struggling with, with sin. He has wholeheartedly embraced a lifestyle that's contrary to the Bible. And it wasn't a, like a, a struggle for him with sin. This is like an unrepentant lifestyle. Sitting on the front row, hand-holding, PDA, nothing wrong here, uh, let me introduce you to my stepmom girlfriend. Like, that's this type of, like, situation that's happening here. And, um, and Paul writes in verse 2, he addresses the whole church, and he's like, and you are proud. Y'all think that they look good together. Like, you, it doesn't even seem to bother any of you. And I think that's really important for us to just hover over there for a second, because they it's important to clarify that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is not just about a man who's sleeping with his stepmom. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is about a church 
who's not addressing a person who's embracing their sin. That's, that's what Paul is talking about. And then, then Paul tells them two things that should have happened. He says this in continuing in verse 2. He says, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning? And secondly, and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Whoa. So the first thing, let's address the first thing. He says, he says uh, this should have broken your heart, essentially. This should have grieved you. It was, what it's probably inferring, without Paul saying it, I think, would be that the people in the church of Corinth had massive sexual sin of their own. Because he's like, this doesn't seem to bother you guys. You guys should be crying about it. You should be grieving this. This should be something, a place of like mourning. But, but usually, when you have sin in your own life that you're tolerating, you don't want to start drawing lines anytime quick. Because sometimes when you start drawing lines and it gets a little bit too close to the sin that you're tolerating in your own life, you end up condemning yourself. And so that ends up kind of like, Maybe even what we're tempted to do 2,000 years later is just be like, you know what? You do you. Who am I to judge? Like, you, you live your life, and I, I don't want to infringe, and you, you, you just live your truth. And Paul's like, you should be grieved by this. And the second thing, I mean, he goes right at it. He's like, you should have put this man out of fellowship. And you're like, well, what does that mean? It means what you think it means. Like, you should, like, kick kicked him to the curb. Like, you should, like, like kick him out of the church. And, and it, I don't know about you, but I'm like, that feels a bit judgy, Paul. And just when I'm like, okay, Paul, simmer down now, he goes on and, and doubles down on it in verse 3. He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, like, I'm writing this letter to you guys, I've heard about what's going on, even though I'm not physically present, I'm already with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul's, Paul's literally like, uh, I'm not even there and I'm calling it. I'm, I'm not, I, I, don't even, I don't need to go out with the guy. I don't need to hear his side of things. I don't even need to pray about this. I'm throwing a flag on the field foul. Like, y'all aren't dealing with this. Like, this, this, is, this is just wrong, wrong, wrong every other way you think of it. And then he tells them what to do about it. In verse 4, it gets better. He says, so, so when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit, and please don't hear that as like a weird, like, he's, he's just saying, like, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm, I'm like your father, I'm praying for you, I love you guys. He says, when you're assembled, I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, number five, verse five, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Dang! Like, hand him over to Satan? What does that even mean? It doesn't sound good. I don't want that to happen to me. Like, hand him over to Satan. It sounds like some sort of like a cult offering, like, like you see on like Indiana Jones or something. Like, I don't know what's happening there, but like, it does not sound good. It's almost like Paul's saying, don't just tell him to go to hell, hand him over to Satan, right? Satan, meet Gerald. Gerald, Satan's gonna take you from here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's this kind of like, hand him over to Satan. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Now, we've, we've all right, so we're in verse five. There's 13 verses here. It gets better. If you're having a difficult time right now, as you're like reading through this and you're like, man, Paul seems super judgy. Um, 
I don't know how I feel about this ultra-conservative, legalistic, old-school, fundamentalist, uncaring hate speech. Like, this is a lot. This is a lot, Paul. I want you to consider this. Before you write them off, before you think, yeah, let's just keep moving on. Let's go to the next chapter. I want you to think about this. This is the same guy who just eight chapters later, in chapter 13 to be exact, of the very same letter, writes the most conclusive definition of what love is. Same guy. So how can the same guy to the same people in the same letter write something as callous as hand him over to Satan and then also love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. How can you say both of those at the same time? Seems like a bit of a contradiction. I like a lot of a contradiction, but I think that if we're willing, if you're willing to accept the tension that Paul is explaining here, this is a very important tension to manage, one that the church has historically not managed well. Because I want you to see what Paul, why Paul tells them to hand him over to Satan. And continue in verse 5, it says this, so that, say it with me, so that, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. To hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What is Paul talking about? Sounds a little bit better, but what in the world is he getting at? And you'll see if you read, keep reading down verse 6, 7, and 8, he's talking about, he all of a sudden starts breaking into this whole kind of teaching on the Passover. And you may remember the Passover. It's kind of an Old Testament story um, where it was the last plague where Moses was going up to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And they went through all of the plagues. The last one was what we call the Passover. It was to get the Egyptians to release the Israelites from slavery. And so the Israelites were instructed to do something kind of different, weird. They, they were to take the blood of a lamb and they were to mark the doorposts of their home, the front door of their home. And when God saw this, he would spare their family from death. So their home was protected, covered, like you would say, under the blood. And so if you're, if you're in the house, if you're within the house in an Israelite home and you've, you've done what the Lord has instructed, then you are protected. You're under the blood of the lamb. That's kind of where we get that saying from, right? And you were considered safe. But if you chose not to follow the instruction of God, then you were left uncovered. And, and Paul is saying that there is a spiritual covering when you come into alignment with the will and the ways of God. When you walk in obedience to the instructions of God, then you get to experience um, a blessing within the family of God, protection, a covering within the family of God. Now, there's a guy like me, he's a pa I'm a pastor, microphone on a stage, and you're like, it kind of sounds a little bit like manipulative, like you're telling me I got to do what you tell me to do, and then therefore, like, it sounds controlling. No controlling here. 
It's just this reality. And whether we understand it or we don't understand it, some things are true whether you understand them or not. And Paul is saying, like, look, you may not realize this. You may not even understand it. And you may actually be spoiled because you're living within it. But there isn't a, when you come into alignment with the will and the ways of God in the family of God, you will experience a blessing out of that obedience, that, a protection that you may not even realize you're receiving. And when you're outside of the fellowship of the family of God, you are left uncovered. And you will feel the pain of the consequences of your sin. This is, this is what Paul's kind of getting at here. And the hope is, is that when you come out from, from, from under the covering, that when you're faced with the, the pain of the consequences of your sin, that you will turn back in repentance and be welcomed back into the fellowship. And Paul's saying, the reason I want you to kick this man out of fellowship is because I care about him so much seems so crazy. I mean, to us, especially in our, our day and age, it's like, wait a minute, hold on a second. You love this guy so much. You care about this so much that you would say, like, like to disfellowship him is to love him? It doesn't even make any sense. And it kind of reminds me of the prodigal, the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. And you may remember uh, the story where, where the younger son is a bit of a kind of wild, wild child. And he's like, Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but I want you to act like you are, and I want you to give me all that I have coming to me. I want my portion of the inheritance so that I can go do whatever the heck I want to do with the stuff that is due me. And so the father has this really, I'm sure it, it goes really quickly in the story, but I'm sure if that was really actually happening, like this difficulty of trying to make this decision. So the father gives the son what he wanted, knowing that once he left home, once he came out of the covering of the family, that the full weight of his sin would come to rest on his shoulders in hopes I'll give you what you want. I hope that you will see the error of your ways and that it would break you and that you would come running back home. And the father is essentially saying to this younger son, if you want to go down that road, go. And when it fails you and you want to come back, I'm going to be waiting here with arms wide open, ready. And I can't wait for you to come back home. And I think it's really important for us to realize that Paul's motivation in writing 1 Corinthians chapter 5, his motivation for talking about this whole thing is not about punishment. It's about restoration. Because sometimes you can be at church and still be lost. And I think Paul's looking at this, at this guy that's, that's doing this, and he's like, look, you guys think you're doing the best thing by just kind of turning a blind eye to it and not dressing it, all of those types of things. I'm telling you, he's in your midst, but he's lost. And sometimes the greatest thing you can do is to hold him accountable for his own actions so that he can finally feel the pain of the consequence of his own sin, turn, repent, and come back into fellowship. Because oftentimes it is the consequence of our sin, the felt consequences of our sin that will finally drive us back into relationship with God. And those of you who have walked away from church, who have walked away from God, know that when you come out from underneath that covering and you feel the full weight of the consequences of your sin, many times what you thought was going to be better is actually much worse. And, and you come running, crawling, walking back to God. 
the one who you thought was overbearing, the one who you thought should stay in his lane, the one who you thought has no idea and doesn't know what he's talking about, all of a sudden you realize there was wisdom beyond what you thought there was. And Paul's communicating something that, that flies in, in the face of our individualistic society. And this is it. That my unrepentant sin affects you. And your unrepentant sin affects us. Now, I, I, I struggle. I don't, I don't like that either. But I think it's important that we take note of what Paul is talking about in the midst of a local assembly of believers. I, I think if we, if we were to bring this down into modern day terms, something that we can understand. Maybe you've had this happen to you, and I know that many families have, or maybe you just know of family and friends that have had to make this hard decision. Especially in this day and age, with drug addiction, drug abuse, and all things that are going on. So many families have a, have a younger sibling, a younger ch- or an older child that um, is just going down the wrong road. They're hanging out with the wrong crowd. They start getting into drugs. Maybe they're stealing from the family, right? And conversation after conversation after conversation brings no change. It goes from bad to worse, and then it gets worse. And, and the parents have to make one of the hardest decisions of their life, and it feels so wrong, but it's all they have left to do. And so they have to sit down and tell their child that they can no longer live in their home anymore. But don't make a mistake. Like, this decision is not about punishment. This decision is a wake-up call. And that sometimes you need to leave in order to come back. This decision is made out of a hope of restoration of their child and protection for the rest of the family. And in that same way, Paul's saying kind of like this. Paul explains a little bit more in verse 6, and he says, your boasting is not good. Like, you shouldn't be proud of this. Don't you know that a, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Paul's saying, like, sin is like a cancer. And it's not just about, like, errant sin. Oh, yeah, you messed up. Yeah, you stumbled. Yeah, you're struggling. He's saying unrepentant sin is like cancer. You can't just act like it's not there and it goes away. It just never works that way. Sometimes you have to have surgery and cut it out and then undergo chemo and radiation so that it doesn't spread. Because once sin is tolerated, it will soon be accepted. And once it is accepted, it will soon be celebrated. And once it is celebrated, it will soon be legislated. And it goes down a very slippery slope. He goes on in verse 7. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. And then he says these words, as you really are. He says, as you really are, a new unleavened batch. Paul's reminding them of who they are in Christ. In Christ, you are made clean. In Christ, you are undefiled. In Christ, you are made whole. In Christ, you are healed. In Christ, you are saved. You are whole in Christ Jesus. And he's essentially confronting them. He's like, so why would you choose to purposefully embrace the sin for which your Savior died for? 
mean, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? It'd be crazy for you to embrace the, the sin that is going on in your life and say, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. Sin's good, sin is good, sin is good. And then we gather on a Sunday morning and we're like, sin is bad, Jesus freed us from it. You can have both at the same time. Like, you can't celebrate your sin and worship the Savior that saved you from it. You mean, like, oh, sin's not that big of a deal. Everything's fine. It's okay. I celebrated. And at the same time, thank you, Jesus, for freeing me from my sin. It's hypocrisy at best and delusion at worst. And Paul is just, maybe not even nicely, just calling it out. And then he switches gears a little bit. He's like, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I wasn't clear in my previous letter. In verse 9, this is what he says. I wrote to you in my letter. In other words, there was a letter before 1 Corinthians. So actually, 1 Corinthians would be 2 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians we don't have a copy of. So he's just referencing his first letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you'd have to leave the world. He's like, maybe, 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 maybe you misunderstood me. You must have thought that I was saying, don't hang out with people who are not of the faith and are sinning. That's not what I meant. And if you're a Corinthian reading this for the first time or hearing it read publicly, they're thinking like, oh man, I'm... I thought that we were supposed as Christians to get together and to judge all the evil people who are sinning outside and acting like the world. Paul's like, no, 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 no. You aren't supposed to judge people in the world because there's no common standard by which anyone has agreed to judge them by. In other words, quit judging the world for acting like the world. Quit judging sinners for acting like sinners. It's what they are. It's what they do. Why would you act like they're supposed to do something different than that? Why would you judge them as though they should know better? What business do you have judging people outside of the church that don't even agree to the standard by which you're judging them? Well, when you say it that way, Paul, it kind of makes a little more sense. And why I'm so frustrated with the world. Okay, well then what did he mean? I'm glad you asked. Verse 11. He says, but now I'm writing to you to clarify that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. But is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler? Don't even eat with such people. And I'm sure they must have been like, wow, we like had this totally backward. We were separating ourselves from sinners outside of the church while we were tolerating the sins of those inside the church. Ooh. You can wave your hanky now. Like, we were being critical of all of the non-Christians because they weren't acting right. And meanwhile, we got this guy acting worse than any of them, and we're saying, oh, no biggie, grace, grace, love, love. You're my bro. It's okay. It's fine. We thought that because we were Christians that, that we should just be critical of people in the world. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Actually, just, just the opposite. 
We need compassion for the world and discipline for the church. He says in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So if you're already like, Pastor Justin, I don't like anything you've been saying. You're just like, I think you're making this junk up, this this junk, I don't even believe in it. Just read verse 12 and sit in that. Because he pretty much is just like, okay, everything that you just didn't like, what I just said, he's like, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Doesn't it seem like a double standard? Yes, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. You nailed it. May I remind you that Jesus came for the outsiders and all of the religious hypocrites criticized him for it. Jesus actually didn't have much patience for the insiders who were just playing the game and trading in blatant sins for others that are easier to hide. He was flipping tables over that stuff. So if someone is involved in sexual sin and is not a Christian, what should we do? You should love them. You should pray for them. You should befriend them. You should witness to them because Jesus came for people like them. In fact, the real danger for the church is not the sin in the world. It is the sin that is tolerated within the church. I get it. I know. I think what Paul's actually saying is it is the hypocritical, unrepentant Christians are a much worse influence on you. Than the world. And I said a couple weeks ago, and I really feel it's a prophetic word for our day, for our age, is this, that revival doesn't come when the world stops acting like the world. Revival will come when the church starts acting like the church. And Paul just hits it. In other words, if, as long as you are struggling with sin, you are welcome. You're welcome. I I don't think Paul or Jesus or any is looking for perfect people. He's just saying, just be humble and own your crap. That's okay. I'm not actually asking you to be perfect. I'm not asking you to never mess up. I'm not asking for any of that or anything even close to that. I'm just saying, like, be humble so that you don't have to be humiliated. And he warns the Corinthians to beware of people who say they're Christians and yet endorse things that God does not. Now, make sure that as we talk about this, I know, I'm just going to say it, because I know what we're thinking. Um, well, what about, is this, does this apply to like LGBTQ plus? And what, where, where are you headed with this? And where, where, where does this go? Like, does, does, yeah, I think it, it does apply. I, here's, here's the point, though. I'm actually more concerned that it mentions in the list, along with the sexual immorality, the greedy, the idolater, the slanderer, the drunkard, the swindler. Because it's very easy to judge the blatant sins of others that we don't necessarily have. It's the other ones that are easier to hide. That, that Paul's like, oh, no, no, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Please don't think that I'm just talking about a guy that's sleeping with a stepmom. I'm talking about all y'all. 
Talk about all the unrepentant sin, all the pride that's rising up, and all the puffed up attitudes that I'm better than other people. Like, he's like, oh no, I'm coming right at you, too, right between the eyes. Oh, jeez, Paul. Essentially, Paul's saying the church should be different, not just another shade of gray from the world. And he, he goes on in verse 13, he sums it all up, and he says this, God will judge those outside. Expel, expel the wicked person from among you. Drop the mic, walk off stage. I don't, when I read this, I'm like, Paul, did you ever read in the Bible, like, judge not lest ye be judged? It's interesting because Paul, biblically speaking, Paul um, says there's two different groups of people, those who shouldn't be judged and those who should be judged. And unfortunately, we, along with the Corinthians, uh, get them mixed up all the time. We want to spank the world and spoil the church. Well, they, they need to change, they need to do, you didn't, and they didn't, and they should have, and they, but they wouldn't. And yet in the church, it's like compassion and grace, 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 friend, 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 don't, don't tell me, stay in your lane. Because Paul says, well, who will judge those outside? God. So when you are judging those outside the church, who are you acting like? God, God, God. Yeah, and you're, you're not. So in case you had any delusions of grandeur, right? You're not. It's easy to judge the blatant sins of the world. That's simple, church. You can look around and be like, my goodness, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Have you watched the news? Have you seen what's going on in our schools? Have you seen what's going on on Capitol Hill? Have you seen the elections? Have you seen what's, what people are doing? Have you? It's easy to judge the blatant sins of the world, but in doing so, Christians end up comparing themselves to the world to help them feel better about their own sins that are easier to hide. Paul's like, cut it out. Since when is the world a litmus test for God's approval? So I want to leave you with four things. How do we apply this scripture today? Because you're like, man, this is a heavy one. This is, big. this is heavy. What am I supposed to do with this thing? I want to give you four things that I'm just pulled right from this scripture. The first one is this. We are to love, pray for, befriend, and have compassion for those outside the church. We're to love, befriend, witness to, have compassion for, and pray for those outside the church. Jesus came for them. And you may be the only Jesus that they ever get to see. So that's the first thing. The second one is this, and this one is going to be as fun. Um, we're to judge those inside the church. And some of you are thinking, Hallelujah. I've got seven people, maybe eight, that I would love to kick out of New Life Church, right? <laughs> Pastor Justin, I think that we should have an all-church meeting where we can vote people off the island tonight in Jesus' name, right? Like, some of you are like, listen, here's, the, here's my point. If this excites you, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> if you're like, yeah, this is, this is what I'm talking about. We need to start obeying the word of God, right? We need to start doing what the Bible says, and start kicking people out of church the way that Paul tells us to. This isn't supposed to energize you. In fact, let me remind you, back in the beginning of, of chapter 5, Paul actually says, this should grieve you. 
You should be in mourning over this. And so what I would say is this, that this is the time for you to look in the mirror, not down the aisle. Now it's your amen, right? And I know that's kind of scary for some of us. When I talk about like, we should judge those inside the church because some of you have had experiences. Those of you who have been in church for longer than a week have probably felt judged. At some point, you're like, oh man, yeah, there was like sister so-and-so. I think her, she felt she had a, a gift of judging, right? Like, I mean, I felt judged. In fact, that was the reason why I stopped going to church for a long time is because I felt judged by those inside the church. And so I don't really know what to do with this, Pastor Justin. Like, I understand what you're saying, but like, this absolutely scares me because it's, I, I, I'm here, but I'm barely here right now because of the pain and hurt that's been inflicted on me by the judging of other people in the church of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. There is nothing in here that Paul is influencing or inciting to say, yeah, you know what? This is about a witch hunt. You better start spying on people and be like, hey, did you hear about so-and-so and what they did? And I'm telling you what, you should be praying for them because they, you know, I'm pretty sure they're doing that. Well, you should, you know, they should be doing this. He's not saying you need to start spying on people. You start digging up dirt on them to figure out like, well, I, I just think that so-and-so and sister so-and-so and so and they, they, need to be, they need to be talked to. This isn't about enlisting new spiritual gifts of suspicion or criticism. Jesus actually agrees that, that we should judge those inside the church, but he actually cares much more about how, how we judge. So the third point is this, to help balance it out for you, is that we are to judge ourselves before we judge someone else. Let me read it for you. Matthew chapter 7. This is the words in red by Jesus. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let me remind you, when Paul's talking about this all through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, his whole goal is restoration, not punishment. That, that's, that's his goal. He's like, at the end of this, even if we have to send this brother and, 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 and let him go and do his own thing outside of fellowship, the hope is that he would repent, turn around, and that we'd be waiting with open arms to receive him. It was restoration, not punishment. And as long as you are in punish mode rather than restore mode, you have a log in your own eye that you need to take care of. If you're, if you're like, yeah, you know what? We need to start voting people out. Hallelujah. Let's do this thing. There's something wrong. So we should call sin, sin. But we should first call our sin, sin. You should help your brother get the speck out of their eye, but first take the tree out of your face. That's, that, that's pretty much what he's saying. And, and once you get the tree out of your face, then you can look clearly at your brother and say, hey, that speck of sawdust that right there, you know what, that's actually going to turn into something much worse. I should know because I had a two-by-four in my head. By the grace of God, I, I was able to remove it. And I love you so much, I'd like to just help you with this. 
Why don't you stand with me? I'll give you the fourth one. The fourth point. The fourth thing is about disfellowshipping, excommunicating if you're from that persuasion. Expel the immoral brother is what I think the title of this passage is in King James Version. Disfellowshipping should only be done when all other attempts of reconciliation have failed. Jesus actually outlines this process really well in Matthew chapter 18. So if you ever want to look it up, you can see it. But I'm going to just quickly run through it. The first thing is this. If somebody has sinned, first, the first step is to go to your brother alone. Which means don't gossip first. Which means um, don't, don't try to strong arm somebody else to do it for you. He says go to your brother alone. In the Greek, it's, it's a weird translation. It means alone. And how do I know when to do this, though? Because some of you are like, but I, 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 I don't know. I just don't know when I'm supposed to do that or if I'm supposed to do that or if it's my role to do this. Like, here's what I would say to you. You should write this down. When the sin of your friend breaks your heart for them, you're ready. When the sin of your friend breaks your heart for them, it's then that you're ready to talk to them. Anything other than that, work on that for a little bit more. Hmm. And then he says, and if you go to your friend and out of love and they don't listen to you, then he says, take two or more to come along with you and in love confront them with their sin. And if they don't listen, still after you bring two friends, then bring them to the church leadership. And if they still don't listen to the church leadership, then the last recourse is to disfellowship. But even that, even that, it's not about punishment. It's about restoration. You're like, so man, are we, we going to start kicking people out of church now? Are we going to start disfellowshipping? Is this, a, is this like a preface to something, Pastor Justin? Here's some good news for you. In Paul's next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he actually indicates and, and pulls back to what he just wrote here in, in chapter 5. And he tells us, he indicates that this man, in fact, did repent and was restored into fellowship, which is good news. Amen? Which was the end goal all along. We, as we enter into a time of, of worship today, I just, I, I would love for you to take an opportunity. And like I said, this is, as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this shouldn't energize you. In fact, it should cause you to look in the mirror rather than down the aisle. I would love you to just take a moment before we even enter into to, to the song and, and, and worship and just ask the Holy Spirit, what, is, what are the areas of yeast in my own life? What, what sin am I tolerating in my own life that God does not endorse? What are those areas that I know there's other people that we're thinking about and all those things, but like if, if I'm supposed to judge myself first, Lord, I pray you just expose those areas so that I may humble myself rather than be humiliated by my sin. And so, Lord, I pray right now. 
pray you would speak to us, make it clear, give us an opportunity, not out of punishment, but out of restoration to be restored into relationship with you, Jesus. That those besetting sins, those things that we've allowed to just creep in, or maybe we fully accepted or tolerated in our own life, Lord, I pray you just bring those up to the surface again. Allow us, give us the opportunity to repent and to move forward in everything that you have for us. We thank you, Lord. Let's worship him. Thank you, Jesus.